You may be seated. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in this passage in Ephesians that uh, was just read, um, Paul introduces us actually to the theme of this entire letter that we're going to be looking at for the next um, few months. It's the eternal purpose of God that God is fulfilling through his son and working out in and through the church. The purpose of God in Christ as God reconciles all things in Christ. And we who are in Christ are the ones who get to share in the fulfillment of God's plan. And actually, Paul gets right to this point in this uh, first passage. It doesn't look like it in the English translation, but in the Greek, this is one sentence. And in the Greek, it's one horrendous grammatical sentence. <laughs> I picture Paul just uh, excited about God's grace that God has lavished on us, being so excited that he, his words are just pouring out just as God's grace is pouring out on us. He's excited. I think, uh, I just had to share this with you. Eugene Peterson captures his excitement so well in the translation of the message. How blessed is God. And what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. That just captures this excitement that Paul has about this plan. And that's what Paul's doing. He's telling us that God is working out the grand plan. The, the Greek word in verse 10 of our passage um, that's translated plan is uh, the word oikonomia. That's uh, the word from which we get the word economy. It was used in everyday speech to talk about uh, managing the household affairs. But it's not the household that God is planning here. It's the entire cosmos. Paul is telling us that the CEO of the world is hatching a long-range plan. The Father has destined us. The Father has chosen us according to the good pleasure of his will. Paul's emphatic. God the Father chose us in Christ. The Father put us and Christ together in a decision that God made before we even existed. In fact, Paul says that God made this decision. He chose us before the world even began. This wasn't some last-minute decision that God was making, you know, because he felt sorry for us or because no one else would have us. 
God elected us simply out of God's unmerited, uh, our unmerited favor. We, God is doing it just because God wanted to do it. Our translation, I'm glad it uh, doesn't translate it as it sometimes does in verse 6, that, um, that we've been blessed with God's grace. It says we've been lavished in it. But again, Eugene Peterson gets it right when he says the translation be, should be something like this. The grace with which he has drenched us in the beloved. The grace with which he has drenched us in the beloved. The idea is this. You and I got chosen by God. Now, pay theologians refer to that as predestination. Okay? And the words in our text. I don't care if you don't like it. It's in the word of God, all right? But this isn't something like determinism. This doesn't mean something like impersonal fate. This is like the time when, you know, maybe you can relate to this, when as, as a kid, you know, I was lined up with other kids before two of my peers who would choose who would be on their basketball team. And you're thinking, please, 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 I don't want to be the last one chosen. It's not like that. What Paul is saying is that you and I are the first to be chosen. We're the first. We're not some sort of leftovers. We're on the first string. Now, a lot of theological ink has been poured over who, whom God picks. But that misses the point. Uh, John Calvin, who's oftentimes associated with predestination, said that, look, the idea of being elected or chosen is not for speculation. It's for two things. First, it's meant to keep us humble. I am not chosen by God because I deserve it. Right? Paul gets it when in his last letter, 2 Timothy, he says that he's the last to deserve grace. So it's to keep us humble. But Calvin also said it's to, meant to reassure us that if God wanted us in the first place, God is going to get us to the last place. That's good news. In fact, the word destined is related to destination. Where God's going to get us. God doesn't, in other words, God doesn't uh, destine us for privilege. If you remember a, a sermon I did some time ago with my student uh, didn't like predestination because he took a lick of his ice cream cone and said I didn't get any. He missed the point. He should have handed me the ice cream cone and said this is why I believe in predestination. It's for service, not for privilege. It's for service, not... But look, at that means it's costly and dangerous. It's a costly and dangerous thing to be loved and chosen by God. Do you remember what Tavia said in Fiddle on the Roof? You might find yourself asking God, could you just choose somebody else once in a while? Uh, you shouldn't want to be destined because it's on the way to a destination that is costly. But Paul says this plan, this destining, stretches back before the world began. But we begin to see it unfold in our own human history, beginning with Genesis 3.15, when God says to the serpent that Eve's seed is going to crush the serpent's head. That's the first announcement of the gospel. And of course it was fulfilled through the second Eve named Mary. Paul's concern is that we understand that we whom, the God, uh, whom God elected are immersed in this story. 
he wants us to know that God's plan before the world created is going to be worked out through us, the church. So the point of our passage, indeed of all the Philippians, is that the church, us folks, have to locate ourselves within the long-range plan of God rather than try to fit God into our plan, whether it's some nation's plan or even some local church's plan. I have a, I have a You Are Here Galaxy poster in my office at Azusa Pacific University, and it's posted right as students enter into my office because I want to put them in a different context when they walk in. I want to put them in a larger framework than simply the second floor of the building where I, my office is located. You are here. My, my son looked at a map in the mall that said you are here, and he said, how do they know? But that's not the point. <laughs> my students need to know this. They need to know. I mean, think about Paul in his context. Paul is under house arrest, as Jordan mentioned last week. He's under house arrest. He is literally handcuffed to a Roman soldier. But his perspective on life in that situation is not his present circumstances. His perspective is on the real you are here plan instead of the Roman government's plan for his life. I think if Paul were among us today, he would want to remind us of that very thing in the context of our present social and political divisions. Don't get messed up on where you are. Remember, you are here, says Paul. So this plan has been unfolding. It's been in the works before the first humans ever came on the scene. And as Christians, our conviction is that history is a plan. It has a purpose. It's not an accident. It's not fate. It's not even the designs of some particular nation or some political party. Mm -mm. History is God's plan unfolding, moving from his choice of Abraham and his children to eventually focus on the entire universe, all things to be reconciled to Christ. So Paul's excited about this because he's watching God's plan being unfolded now that the mystery is being revealed in Christ. And I think that's why he's really excited. Um, you know, sometimes my, my students get frustrated in theology class. They throw up their hands and say, well, it's a mystery, you know. And by that they mean we can't figure it out. But Paul isn't using the word mystery here in that sense. For Paul, mystery is a secret that is now being revealed in the fullness of time by means of God's revelation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The mystery is now being revealed in the fullness of time. That's why Paul's excited. He's, he's observing this happen. Now, it's, it's still incomprehensible to those who aren't initiated into the company of Christ to those who are outside the Christian church. But to those who have insider information, it's beginning to make sense. I mean, it's, the difference is like this. If, if we were in a, uh, like a, a traditional church building with stained glass windows, we would be sitting here looking out and seeing beautiful colors. The people outside the building would be looking at the same stained glass windows and seeing just dingy, dark windows. We've got some inside information, and it's pretty exciting. 
This mystery, according to uh, later in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, is the expansion of the gospel. This is the mystery. The, the gospel is expanding to include all people. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's, uh, he's seeing this happen. It's the way God, through Christ, brings all humans back into fellowship with Christ. It's the way that he brings a restored universe out of the disorder into which it has been thrown by our rebellion and our, our sin. It's not a mystery to be taken lightly, though. Paul's going to tell us in this passage, this plan is costly. It requires the blood of Jesus Christ for all people to be entitled to adoption into God's family, to have access to the inheritance. Through the blood of Christ, all creation will be placed in submission to Jesus Christ. But this costly event, says Paul, is the key to God's plan. And without this event, there is no plan. The event which defines history as God planned it is being carried out through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And either you read history through and in the light of that event, or you do not read history accurately. You do not understand where human life is headed if you don't read it that way. We're tempted, I think, to read history through the lens of, um, well, those of us sitting here probably through Western, the lens of Western Europeans or through the lens of the USA. But making that mistake will only distort the truth about where history is going. Some are tempted to talk about everything in terms of the Nazis in World War II and the Holocaust. Some are tempted to do it in terms of 9-11. Some now in terms of reading through the, the lens of his, uh, uh, seeing the lens uh, of COVID-19 as the way they read history. But none of those events is the defining moment to interpret history. None of them. Some might be tempted to look at history in light of the dominance of one political party after an election. But that would be very short-sighted. That would be a very small, you are here, spot in the long-range plan of God. For us this afternoon, the claim that the only accurate way to understand the history of the universe is the plan that God the Father has revealed through Jesus Christ is a countercultural and revolutionary claim to make. The true story of the world all has to do with the Father's decision that before the world, God chose us through the Son's redeeming work. And that is the story into which we are baptized and in which we are to find our true identity. You see, ultimately, history isn't, isn't a mishmash of many stories of equal significance. It's not a mishmash of other stories that have absolute truth. Ultimately, there's only one history. And the Christian claim that is eventually all will see it and all will submit to it. So that's the way to see things. But what are we as church to do in light of, uh, of that truth that Paul declares in Ephesians? I mean, it's one thing to see it that way, but what are we supposed to do? Well, let me suggest an image of what the church is to be doing that comes from Leslie Newbigin's uh, book, The Church in a Pluralistic Culture. Leslie Newbigin was a longtime missionary to India. Since the uninitiated can't see this mystery, they're looking at things from the outs outside the building, so to speak. Since they either do not understand the story of what God is up to in Christ, or they insist on some other story of their own choosing... The members of the church must see themselves as witnesses in the courtroom of human society. 
We are not the judge. That's God's role. That's God's role. God will announce the verdict at the end of the trial. It is God's role to declare which witnesses had it right. What was actually the truth of the matter? That's not my role. That's God's. But we are to be the best witnesses to that truth that God has come in Jesus Christ, is now Lord of the universe of all creation, and is in the process of reconciling all things to God's self. We testify by our living witness over against witnesses to competing accounts of what life is all about, hoping to persuade a courtroom full of spectators who need to be persuaded by the best witness to the truth. And as the church of Jesus Christ, our witness has to be compelling. It has to be compelling. Now, there are clues in this passage to tell us how to be compelling. Paul puts it this way in verse 4. We are chosen to be in God's family in order to live holy and blameless lives. Again, not chosen for privilege, but chosen to live to the glory of God in holiness and blamelessness. Now, holy just means being separate in the sense of being different from all else. I mean, Jesus, look, Jesus didn't call his disciples to be nice. If that were the case, it would be difficult to understand how Jesus got himself crucified. He wasn't nice. He didn't call us to be decent, respectable, respectable middle-class citizens or anything like that. We're called to be people measured by the standard of Christ, as Paul will say in chapter 4. Being different might even get us hated and crucified by those who interpret life through the lens of a different story. Because the risk involved here for the church is that holy means not that doesn't mean being different by staying out of the world. It means being different as we live in the world. God's story, God's long-range plan as it involves the church is lived out by the church in the context of its daily lives. And by the way, as soon as we leave this building today, we'll still be church 24-7 all week. So church, how do we do that? Well, first of all, as people chosen before the foundations of the world, we've got to remember that our primary identity isn't wrapped up in our political loyalties. It's not to be wrapped up in our racial identity or our sexual orientation or our nationality or our economic status. Our primary identity is in Christ. To be holy is to live out our primary identity as Christ people, as Jesus people. In Christ, in the context of our vocation, our calling in life, being holy, being a witness, doesn't mean that I, I tack on to my everyday affairs the added notion that, oh yeah, I'm also a Christian. It means being a Christian who happens to be living that out in my everyday affairs. In other words, we're not called to be physicians and students and teachers and business persons, politicians and homemakers and social workers who happen also to be Christian. We're called to be God's people who live out our primary identity as Christians in each of those various roles. As a physician, the Christian doesn't simply see cases, 
but sees people who are made in God's image, body and soul, and whom Jesus wants to save, body and soul. As a student, the Christian isn't in school just to get good grades or a job, but to be a good steward of the mind and resources that God has given that student. As a teacher, the Christian doesn't think of students as hurdles to jump over merely to get to the finish line of a paycheck and doing a minimal job, but as lives with whom God has called this teacher to share God-given gifts. As a business person, the Christian isn't, isn't to be in it for simply for profit, but to serve fellow workers and the client as the one who follows the Lord of the towel and the basin. As a, as a politician, the Christian isn't called to engage in ideological party politics, but to seek shalom-type justice for all people. As a homemaker, the Christian isn't to merely go through the motions of keeping house and driving kids to the next event, but to be engaged in the serious business of socially engineering a household of Jesus' disciples. And as a social worker, the Christian isn't simply to be doing good deeds, but to be offering a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. So we're to be holy. We're to be different in our daily lives. But Paul also says we're, we're supposed to be blameless. Now behind this, world is the, this word is the imagery of, of an unblemished sacrifice that was to be offered in the Old Testament dispensation. Essentially, Paul is saying that we are to be living witnesses who are perfect. Again, not respectable, but perfect in every aspect of life. Now, if that sounds too idealistic, consider this. Why aim at imperfection? If you do, you'll hit your mark. But that's not the imperative here. Aiming for imperfection sounds like that bland, trite, anemic uh, sense of what the Christian life is all about that I see on bumper stickers that say, oh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. If the call to Christianity is all about getting forgiveness, which, which Paul certainly highlights in this passage, then we might as well stay in the confines of this building and just bask in our justification, <laughs> right? But we're chosen to live to the praise of his glory, to live faithfully as witnesses to the long-range plan of God, to the story of what God is up to in Jesus Christ, to have the praise, to bear the praise of his glory, of God's glory. To live unfaithfully is to fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, right? It's to sin, to fall short of the glory of God, which is why you and I engage in a prayer of confession every week that we haven't done as well as we should have. And we often end that prayer, that traditional prayer of confession, saying, God, we need grace in this coming week to do better, to delight in your will, to delight in your will, and live for your glory. We're not perfect, but the call is to be perfect. And so we keep coming back. So in the context of Ephesians, finally, then living to the praise of God's glory means that in every area of our lives, we the church are to make clear now in what we say and in what we do, the reconciling God of Jesus Christ, uh, in Jesus Christ that unites all things, finally, under heaven and earth, in Jesus. We're to be witnesses to the final verdict that all things will be summed up 
in harmony, in shalom, the end of history to which, as the Old Testament puts it, justice and peace kiss each other. And we are to be witnesses with wisdom and prudence to this story in a world that's divided by politics and color and culture and race, a world of competing stories that divide people. Somebody said, Stanley Harawa said, sin is wanting to live according to your own story. And we got a world of folks wanting to do that. But we can do this. We'll find out as we get through Ephesians that what we're living up to is true because we have received the Spirit as the seal of this story's truth. The Spirit guarantees that what is written is going to happen. In the meantime, if the church will zero in on God's long-range plan in Christ, if we can jump onto this moving train that is heading for its final destination, then the world, or maybe our, just our little corner of it, might just be turned upside down in the meantime, even if it means that you and I get crucified in the process. And I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.